Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We've got a very interesting show today because after we talk about all of our fun topics, Alex Rodriguez joined us in studio, one of the 10 or so best players who ever lived, and it was a really interesting conversation. Um, I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. But first, we're going to talk about an unexpected outcome of the Rays opener plan. We're going to talk about Michael Kopech making his debut tonight and four players turning their seasons around. And then you get to hear me talking to Alex Rodriguez. And I just, I can't wait for you to hear what he said about the shift. It made my entire day. Uh, it was it, pretty fun. We got, we were fortunate that he was able to come here. It's A-Rod. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you had told me 20 years ago, I'd be co-hosting a podcast in which uh, Alex Rodriguez was a guest, I would have first said, what's a podcast? And then would have said like, Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, a couple things to get through first. We've been talking about the Rays opener plan a lot, and I, I thought this was interesting. I found somewhat of an unexpected outcome of the Rays opener plan. And yes, we're actually going to talk about pitcher wins. I know it's weird on the show, uh, but I thought this was kind of interesting. One of the reasons I think that some people didn't like the Rays opener plan was that it would sort of ruin pitching stats, right? Because your starting pitcher would go an inning or two and that guy was never going to get a win and you'd end up with all these sort of weird things. Like we talked about Ryan Stanek's bizarre like game started thing. Uh, and we know that unfortunately wins matter in arbitration, so that matters to players. But I, I was kind of thinking about this from a different point of view here. What if you were going to starting pitchers and saying – you probably weren't going to last five or six innings anyway. So you were going to go throw four innings and not get a win. But now if you're the second guy in, it doesn't matter. Like you've eliminated the need for five innings because it doesn't matter after that, right? And so I'm focusing here on Ryan Yarbrough, who's a rookie, uh, was traded to the Rays before 2017 in the Malik Smith deal. We're going to get to more Malik Smith in a minute. So my premise here is the opener creating wins rather than costing them. And obviously I don't care about wins, but you know it's something people talk about. In 2018, so far, the Rays have had 59 games started of five-plus innings. That's le- that's less than half their games. It's only 47%. Uh, the next lowest is Toronto with 70%. The Houston Astros have had 91% of their games where their starters have gone five or more innings, which makes sense. The Astros have only had five starters all year long, which is a separate story entirely. If you go back all-time, and all-time in this context means to 1908, The 1953 Dodgers and the 2016 Rangers are tied with the most wins from relievers at 42 games, but they played full seasons. Tampa has not played a full season yet. So if you look at it on a percentage basis, the Rays right now have had 29.6% of their games and in wins by relievers, that is the record above 26%, 25%, 24%. So the whole idea here is that there are more wins available for relievers. And this brings me back to Ryan Yarbrough, who is 12 and 5. After making only five starts in 31 games, uh, he's actually gone five plus innings only 12 times in 31 games. Only two of his 12 wins have come as an actual starter. And of those 12 wins, six came where he didn't go five innings. Like wins are being created here. Well, I think you, the way you phrased it was kind of weird because you said he's only gone five innings 12 times. But then again, he's only started five games. So the fact that he's gone five plus innings 12 times is actually remarkable. Well, that's what I mean, though, is he's got 12 wins, but he's gone five plus innings only 12 times. Yes. I mean, if you look at his game log... You can see his last outing uh, last night. He came in in the second inning. Uh, August 5th came in. The se- and then you go back. August 5th came in the second. His appearance before that, July 31st, came in in the second. July 26th, entered in the second. July 21st, entered in the second. So basically, like, he's sort of often behaving like a starting pitcher, just right pitching p- the second guy in the game. But in all those games, he went... Two through seven, two through seven, two through six, two through five. Like he he has wins this year where he's thrown one inning, three innings, three and a third innings, four innings, four innings, four and a third innings. I mean, again, the win stat is ridiculous and stupid and out of date, but it's still interesting that this guy who is 
like not really being a traditional starter is piling up wins to the point where it's actually somewhat historic, right? I looked into this. You have to go back to 1990 to find a pitcher with more wins than Ryan Yarbrough, who was a reliever at least 80% of the time. Steve Farr in 1990 for the Royals had 13 wins. Ryan Yarbrough has 12 wins. Seems pretty possible that he could top that. And if you go back on the all-time list, again, back to 1908, he's in the running for the most wins from a rookie reliever. Reliever, again, being 80% of your time out of the bullpen. He's got 12. There were four guys who had more than that. A couple of guys had 14. A couple of guys had 15. They all finished in the top four of the rookie of the year voting that year, by the way. Ryan Erber was not going to finish in the top anything of anything this year. Um, and I think that's, I don't know, it's kind of fun. I wonder if you can go to a player like that and say, yeah, you probably weren't going to get this many wins as a starter. This may help you in some context. Well, I do think that that's one of the issues that, you know, will kind of probably would theoretically resolve itself anyway, is like, yeah, I know there's some concern with players about, you know, if the opener th- sort of takes hold across the league, how compensation might change. I know Zach Krinke has, has had, a, had a good quote about it that I read where he basically said, like, you know, we're paid for innings, for starts, for wins. So, like, if you take that out of the equation, you know um, – it could really, you know, hurt pitchers as a class. But the fact of the matter is, like, this class, this other class of pitchers, I still think the, the Grankies of the world would still exist. Oh, like, sure. the true aces will still exist, so you don't have to worry about them. And then this other class of pitchers, the Ryan Yarbroughs, would be valued in their own way, in a way that guys like, you know, uh, Andrew Miller at, at his peak have come to be valued. It's, it's less of a problem in free agency and more of a problem in arbitration. Because arbitration, you know, wins and saves still matter, and they don't really in free agency. Although Ryan Yarbrough might end up having a really good case. In well, that's years. that's what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah. though. Like, this could actually kind of uh, weirdly work in his favor. But the main takeaway here is that wins are still stupid. I'm going to cherry pick two games here. Ryan Yarbrough, on June 28th, went six and a third innings against Houston, allowed one run, got the loss because it was a one nothing loss. On July 31st, he allowed six runs and in five innings to the Angels. He got the win because Tampa Bay put up ten runs. The win is stupid, and it will always be stupid. But... The Rays are breaking everything about pitching, including how you compensate pitchers and how you keep track of pitchers, and that what makes them, that's what makes them entertaining uh, to me. Before we move on, this episode of the StackCast podcast is presented by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage is simple, so you can understand the details and get approved in as few as eight minutes. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently at rocketmortgage.com. Based on the sample of Rocket Mortgage clients who met qualifying approval criteria and specific loan requirements at the time of application, results may vary. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Uh, did you realize that tonight, White Sox twins, and tonight being Tuesday evening, Michael Kopech is going to make his long-awaited debut. Uh, if you don't know the name, he was one of the guys who was traded by Boston to Chicago in the Chris Sale deal a couple years ago. He is famous for hitting 110 miles an hour on a pull-down throw. And if you don't know what that is, it's not off a mound. It's basically like a crow hop running start where you throw as hard as you can without worrying about accuracy or anything. Still, 110 is ridiculous. Um, but he did that, and that went a little viral. And then he reportedly hit 105 in a minor league game. Uh, a year or two ago. This is a quote from his trainer, uh, Bobby Strope at the time. I feel like this is a kid who can change the game. I think he's going to throw 107 miles an hour. I really do. And not just once or twice a month. Do you believe him? Um, I'm not sure if he stays, if he stays the starter, he can throw 107. I wouldn't be surprised if he was a reliever in a, you know, one inning aired out role, if he could do it. Um, you know, we've seen Chapman hit 105 plus we've seen Hicks do it. So there's, there's the next step is out there somewhere and you know but i think this guy could is gonna my bet is that he's going to throw the fastest pitch thrown by a starting pitcher tonight on his like first pitch yeah maybe uh you know i think this year the the top is like severino's top to 
I don't know if he's got. He's hit a hundred. I think. I don't, think. I don't know if he's gotten one on one. Syndergaard maybe he's hit a hundred. Yeah, but I point. think my guess is we're going to get a a one on one out of a starting pitcher tonight. And if you uh, <laughs> if you remember, I think a couple weeks ago we talked about the White Sox and said they were a little, I think, disappointing. Not because of their record, they weren't supposed to be good, but because a lot of the guys weren't progressing. Like Moncada has been okay, and Giolito has been a bit of a mess. And I think I said at the time that I included Kopech in that because he couldn't throw strikes, and that was true in his first. 14 starts, uh, 29% strikeout rate, which is pretty good, a 15% walkout rate, which is extremely high. In his last 10 starts, that strikeout rate has jumped from 29 to 35%. The walk rate has dropped from 15% to 5%. In his last uh, three games, he has struck out 27 and walked zero, which is an incredible step forward. He's had zero walks in the last three games. He had nine games earlier this year where he walked at least four. Uh, That is a wild improvement to me. And there was a quote from his AAA pitching coach, Steve McCaddy, in the Northwest Herald newspaper. And he basically said, he's under control. Because you touch 100 miles an hour, it doesn't mean you have to throw every pitch 100 miles an hour. You don't have to work at maximum velocity throwing it as hard as you can. We don't have data on this. My assumption is maybe he's starting to throw like, I don't know, 97, 98 in a way he can control it rather than 101 all over the place, which seems to make sense to me. You still have that 101, 5, 7, whatever, uh, if you need it. And I'm really interested to see what sort of pitcher he's going to be because I agree with you he will throw some ridiculous numbers but he can't sit at 102 like he just can't no you can't <laughs> I'm looking at this, the numbers right now actually uh there have been 32 pitches of 100 miles an hour plus thrown by a starting pitcher this year I should have known three of them at 101 plus all by Shohei Otani of course uh, Otani has uh six of the 10 over 100 six of the 10 fastest this year although setting at number eight uh Ryan Stanek. So. Yes. <laughs> there it is. So there's your, your opener. So I'm not sure we should count him amongst starting pitchers, but he did uh, he did start the game. So I guess yes, Otani. So 101.1, uh, if you're scoring at home, is the highest this season. So we'll see if... He's going to top that. Uh, you have to imagine the adrenaline will be uh, uh, pumping tonight. I have some fun Michael Kopech yes. history I want to share. I can, as I said, the, the White Sox acquired Michael Kopech in the Chris Sale deal along with uh, Juan Moncada, Victor Diaz, and Luis Alexander. Basabe, and I think you want to tell us how we got to this point. Well, the thing is, you can actually trace Michael Kopech back to Nomar Garcia Parra, which is pretty cool. Okay. We'll start here. So, June 1993, the Red Sox select Nomar Garcia Parra. He becomes a franchise icon, all-star, etc. July 31st, 2004, Nomar is traded. Uh, a four-team trade at the deadline in which he goes to the Red Sox. He goes and, to the Cubs. Sorry, he goes to the Cubs and Orlando Cabrera. And um, Doug Mankiewicz. Among others. But we'll, we'll focus on Cabrera because he's the key here. Go back to uh, the Red Sox. Cabrera helps them win the World Series in 2004 and then leaves as a free agent. This was back when you could still get compensation for a free agent who moved during the season, who was traded during the season. So the Red Sox, uh, at that back then, was a type A, type B system. Cabrera was a type A free agent. He gets the... Red Sox, two first-round picks. So three months of Orlando Cabrera gets the Red Sox a World Series ring and two first-round so picks. So he signs with the Angels after the, Angels. the year. Exactly. And they get two compensation picks who become, wow, Jacoby Ellsbury and Jed Lowry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, of course, uh, Jed Lowry didn't do that much for the Red Sox. They end up trading him uh, to the Astros for Mark Melanson, who they then flipped to the to – the, uh, Pirates for Joel Hanrahan and Brock Holt. So that's a whole branch of the tree that's actually not even relevant here. Ellsbury, of course, became a star for the Red Sox. Um, and then he left as a free agent. And when he left as a free agent, he signed with the Yankees. And the Red Sox got a compensation pick for Jacoby Ellsbury, which they used to select Michael, Michael Kopech. And then they used that. Then they obviously, he became a good prospect and they traded him 
uh, for Chris Sale. That is quite the tangled web of transactions that you've weaved Indeed. here. Um, so yeah, so when you think of uh, Kopech, you can know you can impress your friends by tracing him back to uh, Nomar Garcia Parra. I am uh, impressed by that and actually very interested to watch this game tonight. White Sox Twins, because I, I do want to see what he's going to be. I want to know if he throws strikes. I want to know how hard he's going to throw, and I want to know his controls. And also, the, the White Sox have had a bit of a mixed bag with some of the uh, prospects that have come up. You know, they had this huge, they've had a huge wave of talent, but Mankata is yet to. I mean, you see the tools, you see like the ability, but it's unclear what his ultimate level is going to be. But the kind of the next guys in the wave are Eloy Jimenez and Michael Kopech. So seeing Kopech now, um, it's exciting to see kind of the next the next guy. Before we get to uh, in studio guest Alex Rodriguez, we're going to quickly hit on four guys who got off to pretty rough starts this year and have turned it around uh, in an interesting way. Because I want to know: is it a meaningful change? A change that will propel them to success in the future or is it just kind of a small sample size blip and the first name is one i can't believe actually we're going to talk about alex cobb we crushed alex cobb all winter saying that we didn't think he was actually that great and it took him forever to sign and then nobody liked the deal he signed with baltimore and then he got off to a truly atrocious start with the rest of the baltimore orioles his first 16 starts he had a 667 era 318 average against 363 on base 522 he was arguably one of the least effective starting pitchers uh, in baseball the last seven starts, Alex Cobb, 214 ERA, 238 average, 279 on base, 331 slugging percentage. That is an immense turnaround. Like, that's actually legitimately been a very good pitcher. And uh, it's interesting because what did we talk about last year? The reason I didn't think he was that successful is because he stopped throwing his nasty split changeup uh, as much because, you know, the belief was that it would not keep his elbow healthy. He'd had Tommy John surgery. And when he did throw it, it just wasn't as effective. And if you look at the movement numbers, if you look uh, at the inches of drop on this splitter or changeup, however you want to call it, in April and May, it was dropping 27 inches more and more and more. And now in August, it's dropping 32 inches. That's a pretty big difference. It's five more inches of drop than it was in April. And if you kind of look at it compared to his fastball, uh, he used to get pretty nice separation between the fastball and the changeup or splitter in terms of vertical drop. And if you look at it in 2016 and the first part of 2017, it's like identical. There is no difference. And that's the entire point of a pitch like that is it's supposed to look like a fastball until it doesn't and then falls off the table. And if it's not doing that, then you're basically just throwing a slower <laughs> fastball, uh, which is going to get you killed. And it's interesting. He gave a quote to the Baltimore Sun, and he alluded to the fact that he wasn't throwing it as much because it wasn't as good. He said, being able to try to navigate a lineup with two pitches like I was doing before is pretty close to impossible. And this is true. He is not a good enough pitcher when he doesn't have his best weapon to get through. And if you look at the difference here in his first 16 starts, fastball is coming out 55% of the time. The split change was 21%. Last seven starts, fastball is down to 42%. Split change is 37%. It's almost up to an even split along with some curveball. Is Alex Cobb back? Is this too soon to say he's back? It's it's promising. It's very promising. In fact, last Saturday against Cleveland, he threw his first nine-inning complete game since August 23rd, 2012. So almost six years. Um, only 100 pitches, nine innings, 100 pitches, only three strikeouts, but one walk. But it's we, it's easy, inducing some weak contact. And um, if you're an Orioles fan, it's certainly something to be, you know, a, a relatively excited about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right about the weak contact. If you compare his first 16 poor starts to his last seven good starts, uh, his hard hit rate is down from 43% to 35%. That's really good. His barrels per batted ball has been cut by more than half, 8.5% down to 4.1%. Here's what concerns me a little bit. If you look at the first 16 starts, his strikeout rate was 15%. That's not very good. That's below average. If you look at his last seven starts, his strikeout rate is 15%. He's not actually missing any more bats. 
He's getting a lot weaker contact. That's great. Uh, but I, I would sort of have expected some increase in strikeouts, and I don't see any increase in strikeouts. That's that's worrisome. To it's me. certainly a bit. Of, it's certainly a bit of a I don't know if a red flag. It's obviously something worth worth monitoring. Um, but even just getting any sort of um, any sort of production out of him right now has to feel. If you're if you're the uh, the Orioles, has to feel pretty good. And frankly, I think that if he can continue this pitching like this through the rest of the season, like five more starts or whatever, six more starts. I think he becomes an interesting trade candidate. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> he, he has the remainder of the four-year, $57 million contract. This is the first year, so he's got three more years of this. And I really do feel like since the Orioles have sort of changed their approach, I feel like this new version of the Orioles might be willing to eat some of that money to get better prospects back, which I don't feel like they would have done in the past. And also, it, it's three for 43 for the remainder of the deal, which in the market rate, if you think he's like an above an average or above average starter, is like not much. Um What's interesting about his deal is that he had full no-trade protection in 2018, but the next three years, he can only block 10 teams. Oh, that is interesting. Um, so they, they – uh, they, they, I don't actually – I'm curious to know what the date is, if they, you know, if they, maybe it's a calendar year. Um, but uh, on COTS, it says no-trade protection may, may block deals to all clubs in 2018 and Ted clubs annually in 2019 through 21. Yeah, it's interesting because the, I guess the Orioles need to walk the line between if they can trade him and get prospects back, they should, but also someone needs to start games for them next yes. year and the year after that. Um, so I will say Alex Cobb, I'm not all in, but uh, I'm enthused by the fact that his best pitch seems to be coming back. So progress. Malik Smith. Uh, who we just talked about. He was in the Ryan Yarborough trade, drafted by the Padres. I uh, went to Atlanta in the Justin Upton deal, went to Seattle in the Drew Smiley deal, and then like later that day went to uh, Tampa Bay for... Uh, well, I got that backwards a little bit. Went to Atlanta in the Luis Cajara deal, and then Tampa Bay in the Ryan Yarborough deal. Anyway, uh, Malik Smith has kind of had this profile as a very fast, light-hitting outfielder. In his first 228 career games from 2016 through the end of June this year, 259, 326 on base, 356 slugging. Since July 1st, in 139 plate appearances, 373, 457 on base, 576 slugging. There have been 241 hitters who have had at least 100 plate appearances since July 1st. And here is the top five list in weighted runs created plus. Number one, J.D. Martinez. Number two, Matt Carpenter. Number three, Justin Turner. Number four, Jose Ramirez. Slugging superstars all. Number five, Malik Smith. Just ahead of Chris with a K, Davis, and Paul Goldschmidt. Malik Smith, where in the world is this coming from? Can I tell you uh, the best quote I think I've heard all year? He was asked by the Tampa Bay Times what's happening. To put it as simply as possible, it's swinging at the pitches I like and not at the pitches I don't. (laughs) I like that. The numbers sort of bear that out. Through the end of June, uh, he had a 73% zone swing. And since the start of July, that's up to 77%. His chase rate is down from 31% to 27%. He only has three barrels all year long. I don't think he's some sort of slugging superstar now, but this is fun, right? I mean, Alex Smith is kind of interesting. It's, I mean, he's used, I mean, elite speed. Um, he can hit right-handers. The thing about the thing is, they, they they basically don't really play him against left-handers. So he's he's pretty strictly platoon. Although what is notable is that he's actually hitting left-handers pretty well this year. In 69 plate appearances, he's hitting 339, 409, 407. But again, the Rays obviously don't really believe in that because they've only given him 69 plate yeah, appearances as they should. against lefties. Last year, it was uh, it was 268, 286, 317 against lefties. So I think that the the Rays are are buying in this. You know, uh, they're not letting a small sample uh, overcome their uh, their view of him. But as a as a the the better what's the the I don't know. I know when you're the wrong side of the platoon. The, the short, strong side and the, the weak strong, side? Yeah, the strong he's, side. He's platooning in right field with Carlos Gomez. He's the strong side of the platoon. He's obviously going to get the, the majority of the starts, the left-hand hitter. And he's about as fast as anyone in baseball. 
can play really good defense, productive hitter from the right side, from the left side against righties. That's a, a very useful player. Yeah, we have him. Uh, sprint speed is uh, twenty-seven feet per second is the league average, right? So in his three seasons, we have him as twenty-nine-five, thirty-point-one, and twenty-nine-six. If you look at the percentile rank. That's 98th percentile, 99th percentile, and 98th percentile. That's obviously elite. And this is interesting. Um, for another piece I'm working on, I was looking at the steamer projection system. I was looking at each team's uh, projected end-of-season wins above replacement leaders. Would you have guessed that Malik Smith is projected for a three-win season because he's hitting pretty okay, good defense, good base running, and that's going to be the most valuable Tampa Bay season uh, ahead of Daniel Robertson. And, uh, you know, I guess Wilson Ramos might have been in there a little bit, but he's not going to be there well, at the end of the year. And factor in the, the yeah. trades that they made, I guess I'm not entirely, su- not entirely that's, surprised. That's hilarious to me. Yeah. Malik Smith uh, is going to be. So, I, you know, his hard hit rate is up from 20% to 29%. That's good. Uh, but, again, three barrels all year. I think, I think I like him as a useful player. He's only 25 years old but not necessarily a slugging superstar. How do you feel about John Gray? Remember he got demoted a couple weeks ago, and it was very strange. 17 starts before his demotion. He had a 577 ERA. That's bad. Six starts since he's back, a 255 ERA. That's very good. Uh, Before he went down, he had a 287, 340, 455 line against. Since he's come back, 182, 244, 304 slugging, and against some pretty decent lineups. He's faced Seattle, Houston, St. Louis, Milwaukee, the Dodgers, and the Braves. Those are not, those are almost all, uh, you know, playoff contending teams. They are. And uh, it's interesting because his hard hit rate is not down and his strikeout rate is not up. He's actually striking out fewer. It was 29% before and 24% since. His hard hit rate was 34% before and 42% since. I do think part of it was that he was a lot better than that 577 ERA showed. A lot of that was Coors Field popping up there and uh, some struggles in the first inning with men on base. But what is interesting to me is that he has changed his uh, pitch mix as well. He has started throwing his slider more. Before, it was fastball 51% of the time, slider 32%. Now it's fastball 46% of the time and slider 40% of the time. And the slider is a good pitch. If you look at at what he's done with the slider this year, a 217 average against and a 330 slugging against, 40% whiff rate. He has a 250 expected weighted on base. That's pretty good. It's tied for 48th of the 132 starters with 100 thrown. Fastball gets hit pretty hard. 318 batting average, 525 slugging. I guess I can understand why you might want to throw the slider more and the fastball less. He's actually getting more ground balls too, which is helping a little bit. And I think that makes sense in Colorado. I did feel like he got a raw deal a little bit when he got demoted. That was a a very weird part of the very weird Colorado season. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's. But again, if 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 the idea was to send a message or maybe get him to work on some things, maybe that was the goal, and it 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 seems to have quote unquote worked. So uh, if you want to sort of take a generous view of, of of the decision as an outsider. He's succeeded since he came back up. So, you know, my guess is they're focusing on the Rockies front office. I feel like that was a a, uh, a worthwhile transaction. I am mostly in on John Gray. Uh, very good Colorado starting rotation this year. But you, you feel like you have something to add about the Colorado rotation. Well, I was going to make a point that we were, we were talking about this yesterday uh, in the office with uh, Andrew Simon, one of our researchers. And he posed the I think it was him that posed the question. Maybe it was you that posed it. It's basically like, how good would the Rockies pitching have to be and their hit, how bad would their hitting have to be for people to finally right. realize that their pitching is good and their hitting is not? That was definitely Andrew, and he's 100% right. Like, I hear it all the time, like, oh, you know, pitching's not so great, but their offense has been really good, and I wonder what team these people are watching. It's exactly the opposite. They are 27th in weighted ratings created plus at 84. That's which, bad. Which means they're 16 percentage points below league average, which is 100, but they're 10th in runs scored. On the pitching side, um, and pitching is even the kind of messier, but they're um, they're 22nd in runs allowed. Um, 
So, you know, the Astros are allowed are first at 415 are allowed. The Rockies are 22nd at 594. And, you know, the teams all below them are like the worst teams in the league. The Padres, the Reds, the Blue Jays, the Marlins, the White Sox, the Rangers, the Royals, the Orioles. Um, and in terms of uh, FIP, they're 18th, 418. So it's sort of like it's it's still like sort of hard to sort of marry the two, the pitching side, because it just gets so messy with defense and how do you how do you. But they're eighth. I mean, for what it's worth, they're also eighth in pitching war. Uh, by Fangraphs, so that speaks to sort of it's it's a well above average pitching staff. So Andrew posed a valid question, and the answer is it's literally impossible. People will never think about this the other way. They would have to. I mean, they would basically have to. I think they would have to basically lead the league in ERA for people to finally be like, wait. Well, I don't know. Like Kyle Freeland is well, he's not going to because Jacob Degrom has been awesome, but he has an ERA under three, and nobody, myself included, has given him enough respect for that. That's probably true. Our final guy, before we uh, welcome in Alex Rodriguez, Luis Castillo of the Cincinnati Reds. Last year, he only pitched 89 in the third innings, but they were very, very good. He had a 312, uh, excuse me, he had, a, if you look at his expected weighted on base, it was 264, right? And there were about 182 starting pitchers who faced 250 batters last year. The expected weighted on base rankings, number one, Scherzer, number two, Kluber, number three, Sale, number four, Kershaw, number five, Paxton, Number six, Luis Castillo. He was really good. He actually got a third place rookie of the year vote, I think. From and like camp. this year, like in like for fantasy players, he was like a big, like a trendy breakout yeah. pick. Like you know, he was probably going way earlier than he should have because like the people were so excited about him. Yeah, how'd that work out? Uh, Seventeen starts through the end of June. Five eighty-five ERA, four seventy-seven slugging against. That's not great. And if you look at the numbers since two ninety-six ERA since July first, very similar to you know John Gray and some of the guys we've been talking about. The underlying numbers, you know, I don't think they've changed terribly much. Uh, before he had a 348 expected weighted on base. Now he's got a 338. I think before uh, he was, you know, kind of getting what he earned, and now he's overperforming a little bit. But here's what's interesting to me: in his 17 starts through the end of June, he was throwing first pitch strikes 58% of the time. Now it's 71% of the time. That makes sense. Try to get ahead of the batter. Uh, his zone rate is up by six percent. And I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here for a minute. He has stopped throwing as many fastballs as he started to throw more sliders. Uh, 61% fastball rate before, up down to 52. 14% slider rate before, up to 22%. Fastballs can be hit if you don't mix and match them with good breaking pitches. He's got a good changeup, too. And uh, I think there's also some movement issues. If you go back to April, Jim Rugelman, who is their manager right now, said they all agree that his arm angle has changed a little bit. His hand is not getting on top of the ball like it needs to. He feels like he's a little bit closer to being back, although I still don't see the same guy I saw last year. I think the velocity is still down kind of across the board here. Yeah, it reminds me, there was a, um, a term in the um, in the early days of baseball perspectives that Joe Sheehan used to use, I think it was him, um, a consolidation year, which is sort of like, after a guy sort of has like the, the beginnings of a breakout, often they kind of take a step back and you sort of see them try and like meld their skills and their tools. And then, the, then that, that kind of like, that year is sort of a then is the springboard. So I'm curious to see if that's what's going on with Castillo right now. Is he sort of had the success last year? He's taken some bruises this year, starting to find himself. And I'm very curious to see what he does next year to see like where where he kind of lands. I mean, I kind of feel that way about the Reds as an entire group. Like they've played pretty well recently. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, Homer Bailey got hit hard again last night. And I, I want to say that the numbers are like there are 500 team in games where Homer Bailey hasn't started. And they're like four and 14 in games he has started, which I think says a lot about Homer Bailey, but also the rest of the Reds. Like they're sort of interesting. I, I still feel like they don't quite have enough because Vado's kind of beaten up and getting hurt, but like Eugenio Suarez has been awesome. Scooter Jeanette's been really good. Some of the young pitching has been interesting. Um, they're in a better spot, but I still don't know. It's a tough division to be in. And the weird, the weird thing about them is that they have Suarez, who seems to be a star. Yeah. Um, he's young. He's locked up. 
Their best prospect, Nick Sendel, third baseman by trade. This year they drafted Jonathan India, third baseman by trade. I think Sendel's going to end up playing short or second. He's, he's missing. He's been out for most of this year with an injury. But the point is, is there's still like a bit of an odd mix of – of, yeah. of players amongst their their top prospects, and they they need to stop giving Billy Hamilton seven hundred plate appearances. I think he's leading off again. I saw this the other day. It's not what you want at the top of your lineup. Anyway, those um I think are some interesting guys, and I'd be curious to hear what everybody thinks about them going forward. Let's welcome in Alex Rodriguez. This is a really fun conversation that we recorded it a few days ago. Uh, please take a listen. We are very fortunate to be joined here in studio on the StatCast podcast by Alex Rodriguez, a commentator on the ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, uh, someone we've been a big fan of for a long time. Alex, first, thank you so much for taking a few minutes here. It's my pleasure, Mike. I'm curious. This is your first year on the broadcast, and it's obviously a, a very different experience. So I'm interested, what kind of preparation do you do, especially for the newer players? A lot of these guys you played against mm-hmm. or with, but there's so many great young stars that maybe you don't know as well. How do you go into the game trying to prepare for that? Yeah, Mike, I'm very fortunate because I've only been uh, out of the game uh, two years, almost just last week. And uh, I pretty much play with everyone that I've seen. And if I didn't play with them, then I either knew or read about them as young prospects. So I'm still kind of very connected uh, to the game. Um, so that, that I think is fortunate. I think is going to be more challenging as I – uh, you know, as two years become four years and 10 years, then I feel like you have to dig in a little bit more and uh, even do more homework and watch more video. The game has changed so much, uh, especially, you know, since you debuted in 1994, but even in the last few years. How do you try to marry the fact that you bring such great experience, but the game is very different from when you played? It's different in one way. Uh, to me, it's been almost exactly the same. I've been using uh, sabermetrics ever since I broke in the league in 1994. And what I mean by that is I played with a guy that was a great uh, mentor of mine, a guy by the name of Joy Cora, Alex's brother, uh, Alex Cora, older brother, uh, who came out of Vanderbilt. And Joy Cora was very methodical. He was a great worker, but he used uh, metrics uh, to his advantage. And what I meant by that is we always looked at kind of probability counts and stuff like that where we wanted to know uh, what percentage uh, did uh, X pitcher throw first pitch, uh, what was his money pitch 2-2, which was a strikeout pitch, and then 3-2, <clears throat> what was uh, the pitch that that pitcher would throw. So, for example, you take a guy like Jamie Moyer, and uh, he would be kind of a 3-2 guy that would throw you 80% change-ups at one point in his career. Well, that's incredibly helpful if you're a player. Because if you're in a bat 0-2-1-2-2-2, you know that if you get to 3-2, you have the data. And he doesn't know you have the data, you know, because that was before it was really in style. Uh, you take a guy like, uh, you know, Dennis Eckersley, that in 1988, uh, the scouting report was if he ever got to a 3-2 count to a left-hander, he would throw a backdoor slider frisbee. And, of course, Kirk Gibson knew that from the scouting report from Mel Didier, the great scout. And he actually said, I stepped out of the box, and I can hear Mel's voice say, and partner, if Eckersley gets you in a 3-2 <laughs> slider count, it's going to be that backdoor slider. You can bet on it. And he went in there with half a leg and with all the conviction in the world, hooked the 3-2 slider for a home run. And, of course, that was the destiny of the World Series. There she goes. So even back in the mid-'90s when you first came up, were you using it that early on? Uh, absolutely. That's that's really interesting. Very powerful. Well, I'm curious, what of the things that we can measure now, like if we had these, let's say, in 1994 when you came up, would you, how would you have changed your approach towards the game, if, if any? I wouldn't have changed it one bit. You know, I think sometimes uh, numbers are great 
piece of information. I think uh, big data looks at uh, trends, but you have to take the big data and combine that with the human element and really, really trust your eyes. And uh, there's nothing better than your eyes. Um, but if you combine the two, I think you, you can have almost perfection. And I think that's what some of the great executives have done with Dombrowski's, the Theo Epstein's of the world. Um, and they're kind of old school, new school guys. I'm curious always about the intersection between how the player views it, how we view it, how now you know the broadcasting side of it as well. Uh, and I, I've heard you say a few times on the air this year when you've done national schemes that Bryce Harper hasn't yet hit 100 RBIs. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because I don't think most people look at the RBI as what's going to get him paid this winter. But since I've heard you talk about it, I'm curious. Like, Do you think Bryce Harper is focusing on that as much? I, I don't know, Mike. But here's where I think if you have a combination of old school, new school on how to appraise players, uh, I just love that the most valuable players in today's game – are not being looked upon that way. So if you're a contrarian and you look at a guy like Murphy, Daniel Murphy, or you look at a guy like Trey Turner, they just looked at it as average players, uh, and, and their salaries reflect that. Uh, those are the players that you actually need to win in October. Ben Zobra is another guy that's completely undervalued. So you look at Warren Buffett, he values assets. Uh, there's never been a time, if you're a smart and shrewd general manager, that there's more value out there that's not seen by the masses. Because now you have 30 uh, Ivy League-driven uh, front offices that are all looking at the same metrics, appraising the same way. And if you're a contrarian and you understand that Daniel Murphy could be greater than a guy that's making double his salary, boy, it's a great time to be a buyer. That's You just said something really interesting to me. In the Why do you think that Daniel Murphy is being viewed as an average player? Because from my point of view, I think he's a superstar. But I also represent like the extreme one percent of the nerds out there. What what makes him uh, an average player? I'm sorry, who's that? Daniel Murphy. Uh, I, I, so I think the way he is paid in today's game reflects him being kind of middle of the road. I actually think the opposite. I think that if he's making fourteen, I think he's a thirty million dollar player, and that's why I love Daniel Murphy. That's why I love. I'm making actually the the opposite point, Mike. I think that <clears throat> Justin Turner and Daniel Murphy, uh, the John Olerud's, the, the Johnny Damons, the Ben Zobras, those are the guys that you actually want in October, the Matsui's. But yet when you look at uh, the scope on how players are being valued today, is if you don't, it would value a player that hits 45 home runs and strikes out 275 times. I just don't think you can win with that guy. But yet that player is making $35 million. Right. Fair I, I love that. That's a great <laughs> buyer's market. Yeah, things have changed a little bit uh, in that regard. Near the end of your career, uh, this is when shifts really started to come mm -hmm. in vogue. And since you played in the first two years, we had StatCast tracking. I was able to look it up. And you saw shifts about 15% of the time in your final mm -hmm. two years. Mm -hmm. And now we have guys like Albert Pujols, a right-handed hitter, a power hitter, is getting shifted almost half the time. And I'm wondering, when you started to see the shift, how did that change your approach or how did that change the pitches you saw? To me, it was the greatest thing for uh, me as a hitter, it was the greatest asset. Um, I would literally get on my knees and thank God that they were playing a shift on me because it was conducive to a healthier approach of hitting. And what I mean by that is when I hear um, players talk about, or, or, or actually not players, I'm sorry. Yeah, actually players too. When you hear them talk about, I wish they, the commissioner does something about this shift rule, 
The truth of the matter is you don't need – look, the basket in basketball is 10 feet. Adam Silver's not changing it, right? Uh, Roger Goodell is not going to change that is 100 yards. Well, our commissioner should not change these rules. Well, you don't put a box in one or zone. There's not NCAA, NBA. What you should do is find players like Daniel Murphy and, and, and Turner and John Olerud and Johnny Damon that can actually uh, – and Mike Trout that can go line to line and defeat whatever rules are in play. I really wish you don't change the rules. You go, you adjust to them. I really wish our, our listeners could see the smile on my face right now. That's exactly <laughs> how I felt about it. I'm completely against banning it's crazy. the shift. It's just the numbers don't even bear it out. There's evidence that it's not even, it's taking away some infield singles, sure, but there's evidence it's inflating walks and not actually doing uh, what people think it is. It's really interesting to me that you love to see the shift. Well, here's the deal. If you have, they're, they're saying the strikeouts don't mean anything. That's absolute BS. Uh, they say that uh, everything now is at launch angles. Absolute BS. Uh, because the bottom line is this. The way... If Shaquille O'Neal was coming in a fast break and he stops at half court to shoot a jumper because that's worth three and a layup's not or a dunk, that's Shaq's fault. Like I'm an old school guy that understands that a layup is a layup a free throw is a free throw, and you should start there and work backwards. Not let's start at the three-point line or let's not at home run. Whether you're talking about Little League Baseball or Big League Baseball, you always start from the rim outwards, not backwards. How much more difficult do you think it is to be a hitter right now? I mean, I feel like 25-year-old Alex would be a great hitter no matter what era you played in, but when you were coming up, you had these starters who were throwing 88 at their peak and then getting tired 150 pitches later. Now you've got five relievers coming out of every pen who throw 95 with movement. How much would that change that for you? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the, the game has never been healthier. I think talent has never been higher. Uh, you combine that with great front offices and, and great sabermetrics to really attack hitters. I, I think this is one of the most challenging times, if not the most challenging. Um, with that said... Uh, the art of pitching is also being lost because uh, I always worry when I see a guy today throwing 88 or 92 because all that's telling me is this guy can really pitch. Um, a lot of times, you know, you see young hit pitchers uh, throw the ball and immediately look back to the miles per hour to see how fast that last pitch was. And you need to put less put focus on that and more focus on executing, on movement, and sequencing. By the way, sequencing is the single most important part about pitching that's never talked about. That's why Jason Veritek made the Red Sox world champions, because he took average pitchers and made them great. Final question for you. We had Eric Burns on the show last year, and I asked him, what pitcher during his career did he find very difficult to hit for reasons he couldn't quite understand? And he said Raphael Betancourt, uh, which I thought was great because we got Raphael Betancourt's final year, and it turned out he had a crazy high spin rate. And that sort of went to his deception. And I'm curious, when you faced, you know, Pedro Martinez is hard, certainly. Who was it that kind of got you out that you were a little surprised and you couldn't quite explain it? Well, the obvious ones are, are Schilling and Pedro. Schilling, for me, was a very tough matchup because he was – one of the first guys that we started seeing spin rate, kind of 12 to 6, really elevating the ball extremely well. You saw so many hitters missing balls by almost a foot uh, with two strikes. But then he played the north and south game. He can go up and then he can split you down. Uh, that was, for my style of hitting, was, was quite challenging. Um, you know, Washburn was a guy that threw 88 to 90, but they called the invisible ball. He, it was a blind spot. And he threw it right at the mask of the catcher. 
And people would always say, how do they miss that ball? How, why do they pop it up? It was, again, spin rate. And what I think a lot of people don't understand, when you're Washburn or you're someone like Schilling, you want that four-seamer to be straight as an arrow. Because movement, while a sinker ball pitcher, say a guy like Derek Lowe has a sinker ball, movement's great. If you're a four-seam guy, you want it straight as the opposite is true. And because generally hitters swing right underneath the ball. So any movement will actually help the hitter. I know. I wish I had about three more hours to pick up, <laughs> but that's what we have time for today. Thank you, Alex, so much uh, for taking the time with us today. Thanks, Mike. So that was a lot of fun. Thanks to Alex Rodriguez for joining us here in studio. Uh, and that is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Catch you next time. <laughs>